Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7 on this very Melbourne spring morning. I'm joined in the studio and I'm going to use this intro again because I rather liked it last time. So here we go. The master of the microphone, the program presenter and producer of the podcast, the once more, the very alliterative panel beater. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that is a mouthful. I think I said that last time and it still is a mouthful. Yeah, I'm not, I won't use it again, I promise. <laughs> Good to have you here, panel Lisa. Good to Thank see you. you. Uh, not only talking on the microphone, organising all the knobs and buttons. Amazing, amazing display of multitasking <laughs> I think skill. Over egging it a little bit, I think. <laughs> Completing the in studio trio, we have our regular panellist, scientist, psychotherapist, Prudence Dear. Welcome, Prudence. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, panel beta. Good morning. And Prudence, you've got a. You've got a fabulous guest coming on for us. I have. You? I'm quite excited about this, actually. Yes, we're yeah. going to catch up with Dr. Glenn Hosking, who's a clinical psych. And uh, we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about pronouns and gender identity. Yeah. How yeah. about that? And Glenn's been on the show before. He was fantastic, I remember. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to having him back. Yeah, look, I'm sure we'll find it quite entertaining and informative. Excellent. Now, I don't normally I don't normally do shout-outs on this show, uh, but there are a couple I have to do. Uh, one is to Sharon and Danny, who are rusted on Triple R listeners, who are leaving Victoria to move to Queensland. Um, now, I can reveal now that Sharon was a nurse who worked with me for many years, the finest nurse in this nation. Victoria's loss will be Queensland's gain. Anyway, Sharon and Danny, sorry to see you go. I hope you can still listen to us on the podcast. Um, we're going to do a new segment, I think. We have to do the dog park shout out uh, <laughs> because <laughs> in the park this morning, uh, I met Jackie uh, with her one year old staffy called Captain. Uh, and Jackie had never heard of Triple R and she promised she would listen in. So I'm hoping that from the dog park, we have a new listener this morning, Jackie, and my dog Sam. And Rosie say, can they please have the ball back? <laughs> uh, later in the show, we'll be talking with Miss Diagnosis, who will be taking us through the complex area of egg freezing. And as a, a young female doctor herself, she's perfectly placed to give us the personal as well as the professional perspective. Uh, before that, I'll be giving you a bit of an update about COVID vaccine boosters. And Panel Peter, you've got a bit of news items for us. What are you going to be covering? Just the passing of Dr. Aaron Beck. Ah, Aaron Beck. So we'll leave that as a teaser. So that'll be coming up with some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Panel Peter, now do you mention just now Aaron Beck? So for those listeners who don't know, tell us all about him. So Aaron Beck may not be a name on everybody's mind, but he's certainly been influential, I'm sure. A lot of listeners have bumped into the consequences of his work in the late 50s, early 60s. Dr. Aaron Beck died last Monday at the age of 100, and he was a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, um, known mostly for uh, his development of Cognitive behavioural therapy. Indeed, yes. CBT. CBT. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so 
Although this is just the news on his passing and his influence, you know, CBT is obviously um, something that uh, is just part of the, <laughs> perhaps uh, unfortunately part of a lot of people's um, just familiar awareness of something associated with what happens when people go to a, uh, um, a therapist and, you know, it's part of that family of talk therapies. Um, in, in, in some, and, you know, in a very short segment, we don't want to oversimplify, but in some, it's a talk therapy that, uh, you know, that... Um, uh, prudence might be best to uh, give us a word here. Is a coach? Is it point to? Is it direct the patient to consider how they how they think and what? Yeah. yeah, it's about the sort of concept, if you like, of either disturbed thinking or irrational thinking. I mean, it's a bit judgmental, isn't it? But but it is. You know, it can be important about how we how we see the world and how we see ourselves. So if we have an internal dialogue that says, oh, I'm not very good at this, you know, I'm going to be a failure, that's almost going to guarantee the outcome. So Mm. it's about helping people understand those sorts of thoughts and changing them. It's making them positive. And so this sets it up in contrast to the Freudian approach to um, consideration of childhood development and and perhaps trauma. It was very much much based on this idea that um, when thoughts can govern our mood and change our mood, if you turn that cycle around, if you change your thoughts... Thinking precedes the feeling. Exactly. I I always say when I was 12 years old, I discovered CBT for myself. I used to call it the man in the moon trick. Yeah. Uh, So when I was 12 years old, I used to think, okay, what would the man in the moon think? He's looking down on the planet and there's a famine going on in Biafra and there's some volcano exploded in some place in Indonesia. Oh, look, and there's little Nick in England who's unhappy because his bicycle's got a bit of rust on one of his wheels. That's fascinating, Dr. Neil, because I had had an imaginary friend as a kid. And what was your imaginary friend called? I don't remember the name of the imaginary friend. I don't think it even had a name, just my imaginary friend. And that imaginary friend was somebody who kept me in check with my thinking. It's interesting how, yes, both childhood experiences there. And I think Beck's development, if you like, of the ideas around CBT, he taught himself at the age of eight when he'd had some traumatic experiences in hospital and so on, how to re, sort of, you know, reformat his thinking to overcome some of his sort of fears. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't considered the imaginary friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, voice. And of course, one of Beck's acolytes, David Burns, wrote the popular book called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. Mm. I had a signed copy. Um, oh, oh, yes, okay. which I used to lend out to patients. And, and this was this concept, you mentioned this, I think panel B said this concept of manualised treatment that you could write it down in a book and people could take it home and do it. There's another famous book called uh, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy um, Managerialism and Neoliberalism at Play and it basically points to the reason. that's a bestseller. (laughs) Yeah, out now on Reutledge. Um, Yeah, uh, and um, uh, and, and it points to to many of the critiques of CBT is that it's only popular because it's popular as a starting point and that it's, it's measured and bureaucrats love it and all of that sort of thing. And it's and it's very neoliberal, you know, and that we live in very neoliberal times because it centralises the individual rather than the system. But we shouldn't take away from the fact that for many people, CBT is incredibly helpful. Sure, and a lot of people swear by it. I, mean, I don't lend out the book these days because, of course, there are online courses and there are things like the Mood Gym. Um, are you familiar with the Mood Gym, I Prudence? I have come across that one. But, I mean, there's so many even, yeah. you know, online sorts of yeah. of CBT sort of courses and stuff that are yeah. really accessible. Yeah. And so, they work. Well, and that's where the self-help industry yes. has really yeah. picked up, you know, and people, you know, Stoicism has a re- yeah, rejuvenation, absolutely. hasn't it, you know, and yeah. Stoicism 
autism and self-help and CBT. Uh, but, and there's a lot of education, what we call psychoeducation in yeah. CBT, which is explaining sometimes, you know, why, what is anxiety, why do you feel anxious and so on. So, yeah. so for those who are interested in CBT, you can actually have a look at the Mood Gym. I recommend it because it's an Australian-derived product. Okay. It was done by the Australian National University up in Canberra, the psychology department there. It's an online CBT mm-hmm. program. It's not for everyone. Well worth a look, though. It doesn't cost anything. So Mood Gym, one word. Have a Google of that and have a look if you're interested. Um, the other, thank you very much, panel beta. So, Valet uh, Aaron Beck, hundred years old. Well yeah. done, him. Yeah. Uh, um, the other bit of news I just want to mention: uh, we haven't mentioned COVID on this program for a very long time, um, but this is kind of the good news bit, if you like, uh, that we're now getting to the stage of talking about COVID vaccine boosters, uh, which has caused a certain amount of confusion. Um, but just for people's awareness, uh, as of Monday tomorrow, uh, if you are more than six months since your second COVID vaccine you can have a booster. Um, and uh, there's very good evidence this is a good thing to do, Prince. Yeah, well, it sounds, yeah, absolutely. I think that we're seeing that on a global scale, aren't we? But I was going to ask you a question, actually, Dr. Nick. So I had AstraZeneca. So do I have to have AstraZeneca for my booster or do I have something else or does it matter? So that is the perfect question. So most people who got early double dosing did get AZ. There were some people who got Pfizer. But um, the recommendation is if you had the AstraZeneca vaccine as your first two doses, then the booster dose should by preference be an mRNA vaccine, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer um, or others that are coming. Um, and the reason for this is there's a, there is evidence that mixing and matching actually gives you yeah, better immunity. I mean, that makes sense, immunity. doesn't it? Yeah. Well, so it's well, not that you couldn't have an AZ yeah. booster, but at the moment the recommendation is to have um, a Pfizer okay. or Moderna. Um, yeah, look, I don't know the answer to my next question, but it's going to be around, uh, but yes, yeah, so how does that play into like um, travel, you know, international travel and so on, and what other countries will accept? And I suppose part of the answer is going to be it's whatever their rules are in yes. terms of boosters. And so uh, on. The, yeah. At the moment, though, the sort of international standard is just two doses Um, so uh, we record if if you have a third dose that will go through the Australian Mm. Immunisation Registry AIR AIR, uh, and it's recorded there but your vaccine passport won't change if you have a booster uh, at the moment anyway it might do in the future Um, we need to differentiate those the boosters are different from third doses which are a three dose schedule is recommended for people who have severe immune compromise Mm. of some kind so if if you're someone and there are lots of complicated conditions it applies to yeah just on that point can you just clarify that so a booster is distinct from a three dose plan so a three dose plan is recognizing that if your immune system is compromised supposing you're on immunosuppressant drugs because of malignancy or some complicated autoimmune condition you won't respond to a two dose schedule as well and so you should have a third dose but that's considered a primary course of three shots and so that might be people who've had say a solid organ transplant people who have an ongoing hematologist malignancy or leukemia or something like that whose immune systems are not firing up well it's a fairly small group of people but those people are recommended to have a three dose primary course to get their immune systems really firing up is a dose and i'm talking in the measurement terms is a dose the same for a third as it is for a booster like what's the, what's the actual distinction well the current the current answer to that question is yes uh, there is research being done on smaller doses as boosters and would smaller doses be suitable for children this sort of thing uh, but currently this the booster doses are the same quantity as the primary courses okay. so as of monday if it's more than six months since your primary 
course, so six months since your second dose, uh, you will be eligible to have a booster. <laughs> We've had the slightly interesting situation where lots of people are not turning up for their appointments. So we have to draw all these vaccines up in advance, uh, mm-hmm. get more prepared in advance. They then have a shelf life of just a few hours. And then when people don't turn up, um, oh, we've got these vaccines which we risk throwing away. We've actually been giving boosters to people on a kind of short list who are more uh, less than six months since their second, but still want to get a booster. Some of these are healthcare workers, for uh-huh. instance. Uh, we pulled in some doctors from the Alfred Hospital at very short notice and jabbed them because otherwise the doses were going to go in the bin. So people, if you make an appointment, keep it. Oh, please, please, please. I, I understand what's happened. Some people have made multiple appointments because they're desperate to get the vaccine and they forget to cancel the one that was made later, but please cancel them because we'd, we've been throwing away vaccines. Well, we've tried not to. I got I got my Pfizer booster because we had a leftover dose. We couldn't get it into any of our patients. It had 10 minutes to go before it expired, yeah. so I rolled up my sleeve and said, right, whack it in there. Yeah, it's important to underline that we do have to throw it out. If it... That's right. So people, I don't think, understand this. They often say, oh, can I get a, um, a COVID shot while I'm here? Uh, COVID vaccines, it's, it's very hard to do that because you have to draw them up in advance. So we do it all with booked clinics uh, because they only have they're complicated to draw up. It's a very careful schedule, and they only have a certain shelf life once you have. Mm. So there are people COVID boosters coming around the corner. Um, coming up, we'll be talking with um, Dr. Glenn Hoskins. He's going to be on the phone with us right after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the line now, we have Dr. Glenn Hoskin. Glenn, lovely to hear your voice again. Yeah, great to be with you. Hello, Dr. Nick. Welcome back to Triple R. I'm going to hand straight over to Prudence, dear, because this is her turf. So over to you, Prudence. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Hi, Glenn. Yeah, this is uh, this is Prudence, dear. My uh, pronouns are she, her. And um, I was uh, I obviously had a look at that recent article you produced uh, um, and was published in the conversation last month about um, gender pronouns and their importance to to us and um, and the importance of using the correct pronouns. And I've I suppose first of all I'd really like to just welcome you here today and thank you for joining us. Um, what got you interested in pronouns of all things? Look, I think that one of the big things around pronouns is that what we know is that when the correct pronouns are used, it is affirming for people and it uh, improves their overall mental health and their overall well-being. And I think that one of the big things that's really important in our understanding is um, really, or one thing that I really wanted to do was to try and help people to understand the difference between sex and gender Mm. and that uh, gender is on much more of a spectrum rather than being a binary one or the other kind of thing. And uh, really trying to help people to understand that uh, proportion of the population perhaps don't identify as, uh, you know, um, with the gender that they were assigned at birth or with any other, you know, with a specific kind of gender and prefer to use the the Mm. pronouns of they or them. And therefore, one of the things that I wanted to do was to try and, uh, I guess, increase people's understanding of that, to look at the importance and then to be able to give a bit of a message about how 
we can be more inclusive and uh, and get pronouns right. Well, I think I mean that's that's really important that you you mentioned you know that that we have ideas around sex and gender, and I think many people you know confuse them or think they're the same thing when actually I think we we now understand that they're really quite different. So, sex is perhaps seen what as a more biological, chromosomal physical attribution that we apply to people but I mean we do know that really you know the idea that even that there are only two sexes is somewhat um, narrowing the the view mm-hmm. of uh, the truth perhaps yeah that's right so sex is generally assigned at birth and is normally based on physiological characteristics but of course there are people who are intersex and that uh, are, you know do not fit into the the binary man or a woman uh, spectrum either, um, whereas gender is much more of a social construct and um, is much more fluid and is much more on a, on that spectrum. Yeah. So, so in that respect, what, what we can define sort of gender across a spectrum from what masculine to feminine and perhaps something in between, or how would you see that? Yeah. Well, I yeah. guess you know, in terms of the definitions of gender, it might be man or woman or the the in between mm. them they. Uh, and and so on. And one of the things that we know is that uh, any a person decides their gender, okay, and that can change over time. Yes. And it's really important that um, as human beings that we all respect the an, an individual's gender identity and take the time to learn and inquire about a person's yeah. gender identity in order because we know that as a, as I say that that's healthy for one's overall well-being and overall mental health. What do we know about the mental health then of, of people who who don't fit the sort of standard sort of social convention, if you like, around binary genders and identities? What's what's the impact of being, you know, incorrectly identified? Look, we, we certainly know that transgender and non-binary people are about twice as likely to have suicidal thoughts compared to the general population and are about four times more likely to engage in uh, risky substance abuse. Um, conversely, what we know is that, uh, and that this um, is particularly prevalent when someone is misgendered, uh, and that that can really leave an individual feeling disrespected, dismissed, and invalidated. So, when you say misgendered, so what what would what, what would be an example of misgendering someone? So, uh, using the incorrect pronouns the that incorrect pronoun. uh, someone yeah. has. Yeah, that's right. Uh, not respecting the pronoun that uh, the individual uses. Yeah. Now, sometimes people will tell us our pronouns. I mean, I, I introduce myself with my pronoun, and that's a fairly standard thing, I think, for within some you know organisations and within some communities. But uh, it seems to me, by and large, that that's not common practice. How do we, how do we encourage the, the use of, you know, first of all, declaring your pronouns and also making sure that people respect them? Yeah, well, one of the big things I think that is good is that is the sharing of pronouns, the really normalising the sharing of pronouns. Look, it's reasonably commonplace in um, LGBTIQ-based organisations uh, and in the queer community, but less so outside of that community. And what would be good is for a more accepted normalisation of the sharing of pronouns, um, because this then invites people that perhaps have they them pronouns or pronouns that um, people are less familiar with to be comfortable to be open and to share theirs. 
Glenn, um, Glenn oh, sorry, it's, it's Dr. Glenn, Nick here. Um, let me ask you a question, and I'm sure you've come across this before, but um, uh, someone said this to me uh, in a social context, and this is a, a very... Um, older white heterosexual man so you won't be too surprised what might be coming up next what he said to me they them that's for other people lots of them I'm not going to call an individual by a plural pronoun that's ridiculous I don't know what's going on it confuses everybody um, what, what would be your response to my older white middle-aged straight guy who says that? Yeah, well, look, I mean, that is certainly not an unfamiliar reaction. And uh, certainly um, getting used to using they or them as the singular can take some time to adjust to, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we are adaptable as human beings. We, we can adapt and we can adjust. But aren't there, aren't there I, some other options apart from they, them? I mean, why, why do we have to use a, a perfectly good plural? Why can't we have a different singular? Well, there, there are sometimes um, uh, the, the pronoun of the in, in place of, of she or he or here in, in place of uh, his, him or her. Um, so they're also used. But I think the, the important thing here is that if somebody has a preferred pronoun, that is they or them, and that's what uh, is um, the, the pronoun that they identify the most with, it, it's absolutely important that we respect that and that we use that. Yeah, look, I think it's very important, Glenn, that, you know, that, that we do listen. And, I mean, it's a good point, this, this, um, the gender-neutral pronoun being seen as a plural. I mean, I think there's, yeah, there's probably arguments that say it isn't, that historically they then can refer to individuals, so that's, that's not... But, I, yeah, the crucial thing is, is rather than having people sort of outside the community trying to lay down the rules for those who are within a community so you know it is very much what you're saying is which is that you know we have a sense of our identity um, as individuals and no one can tell us what that is or perhaps how it should be you know displayed um you know, you've you've spoken about the importance to mental health, and that's really so important. It is important amongst um, uh, trans and gender diverse people. They do have very poor mental health outcomes generally because of a thing called minority stress. Is that right? Do you you probably across that? Yeah, absolutely. Minority stress and stigmatisation um, uh, are never going to be healthy for for one's mental health. That's right. And, and so, again, you know, the, the more inclusive we can make things, the better. So, um, I, I mean, I, but I did notice, for example, even with the article you had on the conversation, they didn't put your pronouns after your name. I think mm. Victoria University doesn't put pronouns um, in the sort of the main headers for people. Um, how do we bring about those sorts of changes, do you think? Look, you know, I think we do start to see more and more of um, organisations encouraging people to include their pronouns on their email signature. Uh, I certainly encourage people to put it on uh, social, their social media accounts um, to, to normalise this. And, um, you know, like you said, to uh, introduce oneself that at meetings, for example, when, when we're going around the room and uh, everyone's introducing themselves and saying who they are to um, also share their name and their pronoun. Um, so, you know, it, it, is, it is important. And I would like to see, you know, you know if somebody's you know, interviewed on the television or a television presenter's name's included uh, on the graphics of a television program that their pronouns are also included mm. because this does normalise much more the sharing 
uh, of pronouns and makes it much easier for trans and gender diverse people. That's right. I mean, it, and the big word is normalisation there, isn't it? So I guess for some people, for many people in our communities, you know, that, that are not used to the idea that you need to think about someone else's identity, how do we coach them? What are the, what are the golden rules, perhaps, for, you know, how do, I, how do I engage with somebody and ask them about pronouns and what do I do if I get the wrong ones? Look, if, if these things happen, you know, mistakes happen and, uh, you know, we are adapting and adjusting to this. If, we, if you use the wrong pronoun or call someone by the, correct, the incorrect pronoun, um, apologise mm-hmm. um, and then continue the conversation using the correct pronoun to mm-hmm. acknowledge the error that has occurred and then, you know, to, to move on. You know, I also think it's really important that... Um, that we ask people's pronouns that, uh, you know, if we're uncertain of a pronoun or um, we, we, we just want to know, we can never assume a person's uh, gender identity. We can never assume a person's pronoun. And so um, asking the pronoun is, is a further way of helping to create this inclusive and accepting environment. Yeah, but we have to get used to asking that question and not, you know, not in a way that sort of picks out somebody as being different. You know, you need to ask, as you say, of everyone, partly because we should never make those kind of assumptions. Um, Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. And and from the perspective of if you don't know the pronoun, there is an alternative, which is you use their name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and don't don't go to the pronoun at all. (laughs) Glenn, can I ask you a question? There's a point at which humour... It creeps in, of course, in all these kind of topics, and I'm sure someone has done a late-night sketch somewhere about pronouns. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure someone has. But it may be, Probably Ricky Gervais it, or someone. It, it may sure. be too soon, but, um, but I had a young person say to me the other day, oh, I use two pronouns. I use one for home, which is cat, and I use one for work, which is rat, because I'm soft and mm. cuddly at home, but I'm an absolute rat when I'm at work. I didn't want to point <laughs> out to him these are not actually pronouns, they're, they're nouns, but, uh, but, but is this okay? I mean, are we... Have we evolved far enough with this that a, a bit of humour and a bit of uh, disrespect like that is okay? Or is it too soon? Look, I mean, I don't know. I think we we can perhaps uh, you know inquire about how that's kind of taken, and and I don't think um, a process whereby um, pronouns are mocked in any way is going to be healthy or is going to be productive. Um, you know, these things can be um, upsetting and damaging. To, uh, to some populations and to, to people, and I think we need to respect that. And it's, yeah, look, I think um, from a, a comedy perspective, it's always kind of potentially dangerous ground. And when you're dealing, you know, we're, we're a minority. And, um, you know, it, yeah, it can have quite a high impact when perhaps for, for a comedian or their, or their mainstream audience, they don't even consider that this could be an issue. You know, like, why are you being, you know, it's, it's one, of the, one of the things that we're often criticised for, in, you know, in, in any sort of minority is, oh, you're being sensitive. You're oversensitive, you know. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, learning, I suppose, just to communicate these things is, is, you know, getting increasingly important. And I'm really glad that you've been able to sort of highlight, um, highlight these, uh, this whole sort of issue, because it really does need to be part of, you know, mainstream conversation. And Glenn, can I ask you, how important do you think it is that um, people like myself, an older straight white male, use pronouns in my email, for instance, to kind of normalise that? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important uh, to do that. 
Okay, so, mm, so, to, to, so it's not seen as tokenistic or something like that? Because it worried me sometimes that you know, I've been writing emails for God knows how many decades and to suddenly stick my pronouns on there, um, I thought, does that kind of look inappropriate in some sort of way? But that wouldn't be the case. Look, I don't think so. I think that it's a, um, a healthy way to continue this conversation and to have this conversation around the use of pronouns. Okay, that, 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 that's really helpful to know. Thank you. I shall go and uh, amend my email sign-off as soon as we get off. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I think, look, that's been really useful conversation. I guess, you know, it, it's, it's ultimately important for us to listen to members of minority communities. And, um, you know, I've, I, first of all, I really appreciate the fact that you've, you've written about these things here. And it'd be really nice, of course, then to move away from some of the statistics and get some, some real narratives from, from individuals about what sort of impacts I think these, you know, these initiatives have in terms of, you know, positive outcomes for our communities. So, um, Dr. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate your time and uh, we look forward to having another chat in the not too distant future. Yeah, it's really, really a pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, that was Dr. Glenn Hosking from Victoria University of Technology. That, that was fascinating stuff. And I tell you what, I, you know, I learned a lot from listening to that. And uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, it certainly makes me realise that this is the sort of thing we, sh- we shouldn't be shying away on, but people like myself should be embracing this. Um, Absolutely. Look, there's no, you know, it's, it's how difficult is, is it for you to put he, him after your sort of name on your email signature? It's as if, like, sometimes people resist that, as if, like, well, you know, why do I need to do that? It should be obvious. But to me, it wasn't about it. I see why it's yeah. obvious, but I was concerned it might look tokenistic no. or somehow inappropriate. I now no, understand no, no. that. That's not the case. Totally okay. not. So no. I've been well this informed. This is about normalising yeah. things. And I think the other thing is for a lot of people to start using they, them for an individual does feel difficult, but everything feels difficult when you first do it. Do you remember Ms when that first well, came yes, out? You know, well, and that, you know, people change, right? And even, you know, like people change titles. That's right. They yeah. go from Ms or Mooks or they go to doctor. Now, do you know, do, do, you know, do people have trouble, you know, because they knew you as Mr and now you're doctor? Mm. Do they, oh, they go, well, I can't, I'm not, I can't cope with changing, pro, you know, titles? Of course they don't. So, you know, we are quite flexible, actually, if we want to be. And, of course, what this has done is given the world a new two-letter Scrabble word. So to be able to make ZE legitimately oh, yeah, in Scrabble right, has changed my Scrabble game and made the appearance of the Z in my tile rack an absolute delight. So <laughs> there we go. This benefits uh, for everyone. No, um, if, if you love your ovaries but are worried that you're heading into your 30s and you can feel that biological clock ticking just a bit more loudly, well, shortly we'll be talking with our in-house panellist, Misdiagnosis, about what this means, and particularly about the increasingly popular issue of egg freezing. That'll be coming up soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the phone, we have misdiagnosis. Good morning, Misty. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Can you hear me? I've gone all retro. I'm on a landline. Oh, my goodness. Does that mean you're holding a plastic thing to your ear and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. I had to make sure it was charged. It's, it, it's cordless, though, so you'd, you'd be relieved to hear that. That's very modern of you. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, what, where are you? What are you doing there, wherever you are? <laughs> so 
I'm in Yakandanda with my partner, and I've, I've got a beautiful view of the rolling hills and the fields and the horses outside. Oh, fabulous, gorgeous, gorgeous Yakandanda. We'll say hello to Yak and, uh, and everybody there. Uh, what a lovely place to be. But let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go internal. Let's talk ovaries. Tell us. Uh, this is, this is a, a topic that gets me really riled up, Dr Nick, which is IVF for young women, especially egg freezing. And before we sort of launch into it, I thought it might be good to just do a quick uh, reproductive physiology refresher. I think well, on a Sunday morning at about quarter to 11 when the coffee's just cooling down a bit, a bit of reproductive physiology refreshment is what everybody's after. Far away. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So um, I guess to start with the basics of it is that um, many people don't know that uh, people who are um, biologically female, so XX chromosome people, are actually born with the total number of eggs that they will have for their entire lifetime. Um, So we don't make any more. It's an amazing thought, isn't it, that a tiny little baby's got all the little eggies you'll ever have. Yeah, that's, that's right. And from about sort of 20 weeks, that little double X um, fetus will have roughly about 5 million eggs sitting there. And by the time you're born, you've only got about half a million to a million, and that's at birth. Now, that number sort of declines across the course of your lifetime. And Sorry, sorry, take me back. <laughs> when you start off as a fetus, a tiny little squitchy thing inside with 5 million eggs, and you've already lost 80% of them by the time you're born. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so down to about half a million to a million, depending on the individual by the time you're born. And we don't really know why it reduces this much or even why you sort of, uh, have five million when you're at, at 20, 20 weeks in utero and then only half a million to a million when you're born. But the, the, um, the sort of biological clock stuff that we all get very worried about as young women is essentially by the time you're 30, you have about 12% of the eggs that you had when you were born left, which is normally more than enough. Mm-hmm. to get pregnant and have a baby if that's what you're thinking of doing and that's what you'd like to do. But it's, it's a pretty alarming statistic, and especially as a, as a, a young woman in, in my 30s in medicine, um, not planning to have a baby anytime soon, the next sort of phrase that often gets kicked around with friends is talking about egg freezing. So, so let's just finish the physiology lecture um, because you've still got 12% of your however many it was you had half a million or something when you were born mm, so that's still an yep. awful lot of eggies um, why do you suddenly need to think about that when you're 30 what's going to happen in your 30s that changes things yeah, good question, good question. So older eggs are more prone to errors in division. So when you're, um, when that's the sperm meets the egg, starts dividing, creating all those nice cells to make an embryo and then further on to make a fetus, there are sometimes inherent divisions, uh, sorry, inherent errors in division, which can mean that you, the pregnancy results in miscarriage early on. And the older you get, the more likely your, um, your cells are to produce errors in division. So older eggs more likely to have a miscarriage, less likely to carry that baby to term. Um, so that's the first side of it. And then the other side of it is that your fertility starts dropping off and um, people like to use really alarming words like falling off a cliff after the age of 37. But mm. that, if you look at the statistics, essentially so by 32, your fertility starts declining and then it does start declining pretty rapidly from the age of 37 onwards. 
So it, it is sort of the advice that, that most young women get and, you know, speak to each other about, about having children before you're, you're 35 or so, trying to start your family before then, if you are planning to have a family and that's something that you want in the future because that rapid decline makes it just that much more difficult to get pregnant. It is a basic physiological fact, unfortunately, isn't it, for women who are getting towards their 30s that the fertility graph does not look very pretty. Okay, so now the option is being thrown around about egg freezing. Tell us about this then. Yeah, so there was a, a recent study that came out looking at, essentially it was looking at opinions from women about their views on funding. So this is a, you know, it's a totally, it's interesting because there are lots of different sort of ethical dilemmas that um, sort of crop up when you start talking about uh, fertility and um, IVF in particular. And this particular study was looking at what are women's opinions on funding because currently, I'll just take you through some of the sort of our, our model currently in Australia, mm-hmm. um, that currently we have, um, there are two different uh, sort of categories of egg freezing. And um, the, the first category is sort of medical egg freezing, which is women who maybe in their early 20s have an unfortunate diagnosis of cancer and need to go on, undergo chemotherapy or radiotherapy and for that reason would then freeze their eggs because that uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy can um, sort of very, very quickly reduce the number of eggs you have and make it very, very difficult to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Or women that are born with um, a low ovarian reserve, so maybe instead of half a million eggs at birth, they're born with a much lower number and then will, um, again, find it very difficult to get pregnant in the future if they know that they have a, a low ovarian reserve. Now, that's, that's what, what is currently known as medical egg freezing for a sort of medical um, issue. Then the other side of it is non-medical or sometimes called social egg freezing, which is people who potentially haven't met someone that they want to have a child with yet mm-hmm. or who want to advance their career or who... Um, uh, yeah, aren't in a position where they financially feel like they can support a family and so want to wait a bit longer. Uh-huh. Um, now, when it comes to medical egg, egg freezing, there is Medicare benefits available and the Medicare rebate is roughly sort of 50% for medical egg freezing. But currently there's no, uh, no Medicare rebate at all for, for social egg freezing, for you know, making a decision, I don't want to have children now and I'm going to freeze my eggs and maybe keep them for later. And this would not be a cheap process, so a 50% rebate would make a huge difference in dollar terms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So a, um, to sort of go through a cycle of IVF to freeze your eggs, to keep them in storage, to take them out, to, to defrost them, to fertilise them, to implant them, roughly about seven and a half grand per cycle. Wow. But we, do, but we need to differentiate or explain, I think, what's the, what you've used the words IVF as well as egg freezing. Mm, yep. um, just to clarify what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, very good question. So um, essentially egg freezing is putting, putting your eggs on ice. So you've got these, um, <laughs> you've got your 12, let's say you're 30, you've got 12% of your eggs left and you go, I you know, want to advance my career, I'm not ready to have a child, I'm going to put some eggs on ice. You go in, you go through, and it's not, it's not risk-free. You have to go through an ovarian stimulation procedure and process. You have to then go in and physically collect those legs. And so just then, to, when you say ovarian stimulation process, that means injecting hormones and so on, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So what you're trying to do, normally when you ovulate, you get one egg out. You, know, you recruit something like 30 follicles at the time. So you're getting all these eggs, getting ready to come out, but only one of them will come out to be... Um, uh, so to be fertilised, sometimes two eggs and you get twins, but normally just sort of one egg will come out. Um, with this ovarian stimulation process, with the injections and the hormones and things, you get normally up to about sort of 10 or 15 eggs coming mm-hmm. out and then you go in, um, and it is a surgical procedure, and you go in and you collect those eggs. Um, 
and then you pop those eggs on ice, essentially just freeze them. And that's sort of, that's egg freezing itself. Now, it, it's different to freezing an embryo, which is when you collect the eggs and then inseminate them and then start to grow them and then freeze them. So some, some people have um, their sort of ethical considerations of freezing an embryo for some people versus freezing an egg on its own. Can, so can I just clarify some of the practicalities for those mm. listening? So, um, so I've decided I'm 32, I want to get my eggs harvested, someone's popped in and I've had my stimulation treatments, I've had my mm. eggs harvested, they've put on ice. Two questions, how long are they good for and does it cost me a lot of money to have them there for the next five or ten years? Yeah, so, so it does. So there's, um, there's cost sort of per year of keeping the eggs in storage. I think... At the moment, it's about, it was about, when I last had a look, it was about $600 for six months of egg storage. So, again, Do you get a reduction for extra eggs? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if you can sort of bulk batch freeze them and put 13 them in. 13 <laughs> to a dozen? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you do have to pay for the storage of the eggs themselves. Um, and then the other side of it is it's not a perfect system. You know, the, in terms of um, the survival rate of even thawing the eggs, it's not it's not bad, but, you know, it's sort of roughly about 90% of those eggs will survive the thawing process. And then on top of that, they've got to survive the fertilisation process, then the implantation process, and then you've actually got to be able to sort of keep that pregnancy and not um, have a miscarriage from that pregnancy itself. So it's a lot of sort of different statistics. And I think if we, if we sort of look at it from that point of view, sometimes I think the thing that really riles me up is that um, I have, a, I have a, a colleague who's currently undergoing a, a procedure um, like this at the moment, and for them it, it's, it's difficult because um, they're sort of, it, it's sort of they're, they think of it as an uh, insurance policy um, for mm-hmm. having a family in the future, and yes. it's, it's certainly not. There's nothing, um, there's nothing guaranteed about any of this. Um, and and, and how, long are, how, long are the eggs, how long are the eggs good for? I mean, do they last for three years? Do they deteriorate? Do they last forever? Any idea what, what reasonable time span they can be kept for? Yeah, no, they, they, do, they do last for... I mean, most people will try and access their eggs within sort of 12 months to two years or so. That's normally when they recommend. I don't actually know off the top of my head when, how long they can keep them in storage for. I imagine quite a lot longer because you have uh, young women who've undergone chemotherapy who can freeze their eggs for a significant portion of time. Yeah, of but course, I don't yeah. know the statistics about how long you keep them for, you know, whether, they're, whether they're the risk of um, uh, thawing increases, but I imagine it would uh, yeah. increase if you've kept them for longer. Ah, oh, misdiagnosis. Prudence here. Lovely to hear you this morning. Um, how accessible is the are these treatments? I mean, in terms of you know, do you have to go to a specialist centre in a capital city, or can you get them in more regional areas? Is it uh, limited like that? Yeah, it's a very good question. It is limited. You do need to undergo specialist treatment in a specialist centre, and most of those are in the major metropolitan areas. So it's not only limited by geography, it's also limited by finances because, as I said previously, it's $7,500 for a cycle. And if you're a medically funded person, that would be 50% of that you would get back. Mm-hmm. And if you're not medically funded, then that's the cost per cycle. Yeah, and I mean that does seem really sort of quite discriminatory in a way, isn't it? Yeah. That you know, that for people who, for professional reasons and personal reasons, I mean, you know, just because there's a biology that says, oh, the best time for you to have a child is when you're 17 years old or something, is not yeah. actually very practical in our society and in terms of people's sort of choice around when is the best time for them to be a parent. 
um, is probably the more crucial factor. But the fact that you really, you know, you don't have a, a subsidised kind of choice there seems mm. to me to be rather limiting. It, it is rather limiting. But the other thing that I thought was very interesting, in about, I think it was 2014, Apple and Facebook announced that they would, in their employees' benefits, start funding non-medical egg freezing for um, employees. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. Which is, again, another sort of very interesting issue because when you, know, when you reach the age of sort of... With, sorry, with most of these statistics about how... Um, about the fertilisation, the implantation rate, that kind of thing, they say that there's roughly a 4.5 4, 4. to 12% pregnancy rate for a woman who's under 30 years old. Oh, sorry, just say that, was that per cycle or what does that per actually cycle. mean? Per okay. cycle, per cycle. So yeah. each, each so time you try with someone under the age of 30, you've got a fairly modest chance of success. Yeah, yeah. and that, that decreases to about a 12 to 2 to 12% rate for women under the age of 38, and that's the live birth rate. So these are quite low numbers. You know, 12%, even if the, the highest number for a woman under age 38 is about 12%. And you're talking 7.5 gram per cycle. It, you know, it's a very... It's a, and it, yeah, I think the other thing we have to take into account is the emotional cost of this, mm. as well as the risks of IVF as well, which include, you know, pumping mass, mass amounts of hormones into your body, and then, you know, risk of infection, risk of perforation with collecting the eggs at the same time, and then the risk for the fetus of having a, a sort of an older pregnancy as well. So sometimes I, I think the thing that really riles me up is I feel like we're promoting women to have children later and later in life as a feminist issue, as a social issue, as a choose when you want to do this and, you know, focus on your career if that's what you want to do. But with no sort of real promise that they actually either will get pregnant and... Uh, I was thinking about this, so essentially this paper that I read was talking about whether we're calling for more funding for non-medically funded, so non-medical um, non egg freezing, so social egg freezing. And I was thinking about, I was thinking, why don't we put that money into paid parental leave so that people can actually have children at a time that they would like to have children you know, biologically, rather than having to stay in the workplace later and later and to have more risky pregnancies that have a, you know, a low chance of actually developing into a live birth. I think that's an extremely good question. I fear it's rhetorical. I certainly don't, over, it? <laughs> certainly don't have an answer to it. I mean, I'm very interested in this sort of thing. It seems like yet another example, perhaps, of where technology advances. We develop this science, and it, it, it looks like another example of a solution that's looking for a problem. Um, I do wonder. I mean, of, of the people I've known who've done this, I mean, it is very, you know, it's very tough. You know, the idea mm. that this is, you know, having all these hormones pumped into you is just going to, you know, it really has an impact on your physical and mental health. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, the emotional stresses of going through those cycles and the harvest and everything else. Um, and one of the, the most recent people I know who did this, I mean, it, it, it failed. The IVF actually failed mm. twice. Mm. And then afterwards, of course, they got pregnant naturally, mm. which was wonderful. But um, mm. and I suppose it's very difficult to know whether that would have happened anyway or whether mm. actually some aspects of the treatment had enhanced the, the, cap the possibility of them mm. uh, having a successful... So, Miss Douglas, can I ask you the question? You've said that you're in this sort of age category yourself. You're a medical woman. You've got many friends in this same sort of situation. Mm. What, what's your cohort's view and experience and the people going down this path? What's, what's happening? Uh, look, it's, it's really tough. And, and the colleagues that I have that are going down this path for social reasons, more based around not having the right partner 
currently to have a baby with as opposed to wanting to progress their career. Um, but again, you know, if we had better working conditions, most of us would be able to go out and find someone, is what I feel. Because <laughs> currently, if you're working every weekend, it's very hard to go out and meet someone you want to have a baby with. <laughs> Is that how you meet people these days? You go out and meet them. I thought you met them all on the telephone these days, not the landline that you've got. <laughs> and, and I just want to go back to that question about Apple and Facebook. Mm. I, 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 at one level, you think, oh, this is a fantastic, fantastic social initiative and what a huge employee benefit they're providing. Mm. Or is this social control to make sure that they keep their people there, not labouring away and having babies, but oh, staying look, on working? Have, what do you reckon? I have big issues with it. I, I think it's I think it's wrapped up in a feminist lens as providing more choice to women. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the chances of getting pregnant through IVF after the age of 30, you know, uh, under the age of 38, you've got sort of 2 to 12% chance through the cycle of IVF, plus the time you have to take off for um, going through the procedures and the emotional toll, as Prudence was saying, um, I, I think is incredibly coercive. I think, why aren't we setting up workplaces that encourage everybody you know, women, men, and, and everybody who you know cares not to define their gender to have the time off to create a family that they want to create, if that's what they want to do, and if not, probably just to go on a nice holiday. You know, I don't think we all we need to be in the office as much as we are currently, and I think um, overall, I actually I think it's very coercive, and I think it's wrapped up as a feminist lens and saying we're giving women more choice. But at the end of the day, I don't actually think it does. I think it encourages them to have fewer choices and work more. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, having um, I've got a, had a son who uh, used to work for Google, so I've seen you know inside their organisation and everything else, and it's all designed to keep you there. Possibly, mm. you know, ideally, they'd like you there 24 hours a day. Why go home? You know, they just create a little world for you. So yeah, I think it's. I would agree with you that it's a way of just um, making sure that their uh, their workforce numbers are up all the time, and they don't have to give long um, maternity leaves. So. Exactly, or and just, just as a, a very quick aside, both Prudence and I provided examples of people that um, we have come across socially. Neither of us used a single pronoun; we used they the entire time. But I think everybody probably understood what we were talking about. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for pointing that out. Well done. But and, and it's interesting, yes, because uh, um, we were having this conversation the other night, and. Uh, um, there was someone who used the pronoun they, them, and there was a bit of confusion about, at one point, whether we were talking about the parents or about the adult child. Um, but this confusion happens anyway when you talk about, oh, she went to the shops, and you say, oh, was that this one or that one? So the confusion isn't purely about plural pronouns. Confusion can happen at any time. Um, <laughs> uh, we will release you to go and enjoy the joys of uh, Yak and Danda. So, um, say hi to the farm and the farmland and the gorgeous people of Yakandanda and we'll talk to you again next time. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me, Dr Nick and crew. Uh, that was misdiagnosis on the phone from the country on a good old-fashioned landline. Loud and clear, isn't that still fantastic? I'm still, I'm still, my socks are still rocked by that idea that the little developing fetus has five million eggs. <laughs> and just the science of that. And even thinking to oh my measure it. Who counted them? Yeah, that's right. And then you're born with only a million or half a million sun. It sounds as though everybody should be getting their eggs frozen when they're about 18 months old. Yeah. Presumably, there is a biological reason for you know the 
those disappearing. So maybe you don't want to preserve them. There we go. Anyway, it's time for us to wrap up and just time to say huge thank you to our guest, Glenn Hosking from Victoria University of Technology, to the multi-talented Dr. Nick T. Misdiagnosis on the phone, Prudence Deer here in the studio, and panel beater doing everything as always. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast. So you can listen to us on the road, in the air, or in the bath. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.